Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. Welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. This is Rachel Marshall and Bruce Weiner, and we have a great conversation for you today because... We are always wanting to be answering the most relevant questions that are top of mind for you as you're making decisions financially to be in as much control as possible and really being able to navigate the current environment and circumstance and make decisions with confidence. And so today we're going to be digging into actually a listener question that was posed to us that was multifaceted enough and broad enough that would be really helpful to address as a entire episode. So this question today is coming about coming in regards to and relating to the current economic environment that we find ourselves in today. And this episode is going live on October 19th. This is not going to be live on the podcast for several weeks. And so we'll be, I think in January by the time we post it there, And so this conversation is going to sound a little bit different and may not be exactly relevant to that time frame. But I just want to make sure if you're listening on the podcast, you know when this was published so that it is more um, relevant and specific to global factors, but specifically this exact moment that we're in right now. Yeah. And because we never will die off the internet, it's October 19th of 2022. That probably is relevant, right? Right. In case you're listening in 10 years and none of this seems to make any sense, there's probably a reason. So thanks for mentioning that, Bruce. Um, I'm just going to unpack a little bit about what we're talking about today, and then we'll give a little bit of context. So the question is regarding the rising interest rate environment. So what we're looking at today is if you're saying, oh my goodness, interest rates are going up, and how are they going to impact infinite banking? You know that there's some kind of a correlation between interest rates and infinite banking, you're not exactly sure what the implications are. That's what we're going to unpack today. Specifically, well, if borrowing rates are going up, am I going to be facing negative arbitrage in my policy? What's happening with dividends? Can I expect the policy to grow more than illustrated, less than illustrated? What should I be thinking about in regards to infinite banking, specifically with respect to interest rates? So Bruce, before we dive into any of these specific questions, let's just get your take at the forefront of this show. Yeah, I can understand why people uh, focus on this because, you know, the, the the general public are inundated by marketing from financials, financial institutions about, you know, how much they can make on a particular financial product. So they're always talking about interest rates. And we... First, we're are exposed to that when we talk about bank interest rates, whether it's saving on the saving side or on the uh, borrowing side when you're when they're lending money. And what's interesting about this is that you know this is one of the reasons why we want people to take take the banking function into their own lives, so that they can first develop habits. I had a really good question by one of our clients yesterday. He was reading the Nelson Nash book, Becoming Your Own Banker, several times. And, you know, we talk about this all the time with different clients. They read it over and over. And and producers, NNI, uh, Nelson Nash Institute practitioners, 
like myself, had re- have read it over and over our lifetimes too, 50 times. And you're always, you know, kept capture something. And he said, well, Nelson said, I really shouldn't be looking to use my cash value until five to seven years. And he said, so if I'm going to borrow against it to pay off my car, is that a bad thing if I do it after year one? And I said, well, really what Nelson was saying there is that he was really trying to develop habits in people as far as saving before spending. And this is this this is analogous to what our country's not doing right now. We are not saving money before we're spending. And so what ended up happening, we were spending a lot of really cheap money because interest rates were pushed down to not only all-time lows, but then held at those all-time lows for a very, very long time. And if you do if you if you do any studying of Austrian economics, the Austrian are really for free market. And when the Federal Reserve actually manipulates um, interest rates, they cause what the Austrians would call the boom and bust cycle. In other words, we're going to lower interest rates for a while. We're going to overstimulate the economy. We're going to get this great boom by building, by people taking more risk, whether it's in the stock market or in business and everything's going to be going great. And then all of a sudden what happens is you have inflation because you've, you've put a lot of money into the system. So there's a lot more money to buy goods and services. Now we've off, this gets a little complicated because we've been doing this for 12 years. We were able to offshore some of that um, inflation um, by spreading it out throughout globally uh, and it didn't concentrate here in the U.S. because we're such a global economy now. But as they say, now the roosters have come home to rest. And now we're starting to feel it. So the Federal Reserve then has to do something because they caused the problem in the first place. And Nelson used to always talk about this. They said, don't you feel, a little, Nelson used to say, don't you feel a little manipulated when they're solving a problem in which they caused in the first place? And so, except for if we don't realize that they caused it, then of course they always look like the savior because right. they're they're solving this problem that just you know organically arose based on other factors that were unrelated to them. Right. So now they're they're ticking up interest rates. Well, actually, some people would say they're not ticking up interest rates, and they're actually by doing that, and they're also buying back bonds, the Federal Reserve. So they're pulling money out of the system, which simply means is that they're not allowing money to be easily going to system by having low interest rates because people are less likely to borrow money if the interest rates are high. Yeah, so and then Bruce, the- haven't we had five consecutive interest rate hikes? And we're looking at now they're talking about potentially raising them again. We're potentially thinking about, well, it looks like economists are saying, by the end of the year, we could land somewhere in the ballpark of 4.25 to 4.75, depending on where you look. And that's a lot higher than it had been for a long time. So our collective memory, I mean, we don't necessarily always easily think back to 20 years ago, but in the recent past, it's been very low interest rates. And that is extremely high compared to our most recent experience, right? Yeah. I mean, we're talking... On a percentage rate, we're talking, you know, 
I don't, I can't do it in my head that quickly, but we're going from basically zero to 4.25. Uh, it's got to be at least 400% increase. Yeah, in eight, in eight, over an eight month period of time, basically. And, um, which is insane. Yeah. Right. And, you know, people are the Keynesians um, who they say that this is not going to, this doesn't really cause a problem because all we have to do is borrow more money because. As also as we raise interest rates, then the cost that the United States has on their own debt goes up um, because they have to actually sell bonds and promise to pay bonds, um, roll over those bond payments at a higher interest rate. And then there will be a, come a point where people will lose faith in this. And this is where all the doomsdayers are saying, you know, they're going to lose faith in this and they're going to stop buying the bonds. And that will, that is yet to be determined, but that is a real possibility. It, it's happened, you know, in other countries before. So now how does this come into play with life insurance companies? I guess that's what we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about first, just like the basic mechanics. So the borrowing of most life insurance companies, if you're a non-direct recognition company, which means you do not recognize when you're paying a dividend, whether you have a loan against the cash value or not, those are, are one, they usually only have one borrowing rate, and it's based on the Moody Bond Index. And, that, and right now, most of those companies are sitting at 5%. If you're a direct recognition company, then you can choose to have floating variable rates or one or one year rates, so on and so forth. Um, and those can range as low as 3.25 up to 5%. And a lot of times people say, well, I want the 3.25, but remember, there's no such thing as a deal in, in insurance. If you get 3.25, the reason they're doing that is because they're recognizing your loan and they're not paying a full dividend on all your cash value. So, so meaning just real quick, in case somebody is less familiar with this idea and Bruce, you said it perfectly. I just wanted to highlight non-direct means that they are paying less dividend on cash value that's been borrowed against. Is that correct? Did no, that? Direct, on direct, they're going to pay a smaller dividend yes. because they're directly recognizing the loan. Yes, I'm sorry, I, I said that wrong. So if it's non-direct, that means we're not recognizing the loan. I pay the same interest rate or the same bond rate, uh, the same dividend rate, I'm sorry, on all cash value, whether it's borrowed against or whether it's not. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. So, so then that's why you might not get that excited about a lower interest rate for for lending, even though it seems like a better deal, but you're not getting paid on the other side as well. So that's why you have to take everything in consideration in all your financial lives, not just your whole life insurance. Okay. You can't look at things in a in a in a silo. So now let's talk about what affects the interest rates. So I've mentioned this briefly. The the Moody Bond in, index is a a conglomerate of bonds that are kind of the, the way that the bond portfolios are going it, because it's an index of a bunch of different uh, types of bonds. And so what the, the insurance companies do is they, 
they base their borrowing on that because they want to be competitive. Because if if they actually insurance companies don't mind lending money to people, most of them, because a 5% return on the money is actually pretty good from what they could get out in the open market. As the, but, but if that bo- uh, Moody bond index moves up, then they would say, well, wait a minute, we could actually take that money we were lending to people and we could take that money and make more money over here in the in the bond uh, portfolio. So in order to discourage that, we're going to raise the interest rates. We're going to charge people to discourage them from taking loans against their cash value. Bruce, let me just point something out. What you're doing is you're flipping the script. Normally, we think about interest rates and the borrowing rate inside a life insurance policy from our perspective. I mean, that's natural, right? I am me. I am the client. I am the policy owner. I am the borrower from the life insurance company. And I am going to borrow at a higher interest rate, which means my cost of capital is now higher. That's my perspective. But what you're doing, Bruce, is you're saying, hey, there's a window. There's you. There's a window. And on the other side of the window, looking at you, and the other side of this transaction is the insurance company. And so you're saying, from the insurance company's perspective, let's think about why they're doing this and why it's actually beneficial back to you on the consumer side. So the insurance company is not saying, what are we going to do? Oh, I guess we just have to go get more capital by putting it into the bond market. Instead, they're saying, how can I make it profitable for the insurance company, which ultimately is profitable for you as the consumer to send loans to policy owners. I'm going to do that I, the insurance company is going to do that by raising the borrowing rate so that I benefit, I, the insurance company benefits by providing loans. I love that you're sharing from that angle. I just think sometimes it can be complicated. We think that it's us versus them. And if they're winning, we must be losing somehow. And that tendency is towards scarcity. That tendency is thinking money is finite. If they're winning, I'm losing. Really, it's not that way. The whole environment is being adjusted for. We're adjusting for the environment, and it actually benefits the insurance company and the consumer. Yeah, this is one of the things that the Nelson Nash Institute tries to do through its practitioners program is to teach economics so that we can be more financial literate and (laughs) clients be more financial literate why these things happen. Because we can oftentimes just be mad and say, well, I can't believe this insurance company is raising the interest rates. They just want to make more money. Well, remember, it's a mutual company. Why is it called a mutual company? Because it's owned by all the policyholders. So if they, it's their fiduciary responsibility to make as much money as possible for the policyholders. So if they have to raise interest rates to to borrow against the cash value, they're going to do that to match the interest rates they could get out on the free market. Maybe not match them, but get close to it. Now, uh, this is a question that comes up all the time. Well, that, that doesn't make any sense though, because then if I'm borrowing at a higher cost, then why would I want to borrow against my cash value? Because my cash value is not making as much money and I'm not going to grow my cash value. 
Well, guess what? If the company is now making money on the lending against the cash value, and they're also on the rest of their reserves, because the what's what's incredible, Rachel, is people don't realize the major IBC players in this, they don't, their money that they have borrowed against the cash value, it ranges anywhere between 10 and 14%. Mm. So most of their cash value is not borrowed against. And that's Nelson key. Very, yeah. That's Nelson key. So let's very just, happy. Yeah. Stealing the peas. Yeah. You know, so like, that is also an indication. Hey, it's really important that back to that question you had from the client, which is applicable to all of us. Hey, what about putting money into this policy, borrowing it right back out and borrowing as much as I can? I mean, it's valuable. It's super amazing that we can get so much access to our capital up to 96, 98% of the cash value is available to you. That doesn't mean you should always redline your policy. I would like to call it redlining. That would be running it up to a maximum loan all the time. You're saying the people using infinite banking the most are not doing that. They are being very systematic in terms of keeping their borrowing in the ballpark of 10 to 14%. That's really valuable. Something Depending that on which definitely- company you're using, they either have somewhere between 10% of their cash value lent out in the form of a loan or up to 14%. Mm. From the uh, you know, there's a lot. Of, there's not a lot of mutual companies, and I go to these conferences and I I hear these numbers all the time by the, the the chief investment officers. They talk about this, and they're trying to get that now. Contractually, they have to lend the money out. Okay, the only way they can um, affect behavior is to raise the interest rates. Mm-hmm. Oh, what's that sound like? It sounds like the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is affecting ha- uh, behavior by either raising the interest rates or lowering the interest rates. Now, why should a sh- why should a policyholder of a mutual company uh, not mind <clears throat> that they're raising the borrowing rate or the loan rate? Why should you not get, be affected by that? Because, as Nelson said on many many occasions, interest rates don't matter, and this is hard for people to understand. But here's why they don't matter. If you have more and more money in the form of premiums go into the insurance company, those insurance companies are going to deploy that to make money for the policyholders. And that money is going to get paid back in the form of dividends. 75% of that is in the form of bonds. So as interest rates go up, bonds are interest rate sensitive. They will then pay out greater dividends. And throughout the history of these mutual companies, the dividend rate has always stayed above the lending rate. It it makes total sense that it would because they would not want to have a situation that they would be making less money than what they're they're, uh, lending out um, because they want to to be profitable for their their, uh, mutual policyholders. It makes perfect sense. And that I just want to highlight because it's really important to recognize that rising interest rate does not only affect the borrowing component of infinite banking. It also impacts your growth rate on the dividend side. So rising interest rates, sure, your loan rate increases. That's the cost of capital. But also the growth increases because dividends rise. Same with lowering interest rates. You might have a lower cost of capital, but you're going to have a lower dividend rate. And so as it's affecting both, you're in a position where you, Bruce, are you okay? 
Am I saying something wrong? Okay, I, I saw your face here. So the the interest rate is going to impact two different sides of your policy. It's going to impact the cost and it's going to impact the growth. And that's important to note because it's not just impacting your cost. No, I'm sorry. The sun was kind of. Uh, oh, you're okay. In my eye for a second. Uh, <laughs> no, you were saying perfectly. So what's it, what's interesting though? There is there is a, a lag in the portfolio. So interest rates have, uh, lending rates in mutual companies have stayed pretty much the same for 10 years. And now we're seeing a spike in the interest rates in the last eight months or so. And people are saying, oh, how, when are they going to adjust the, the borrowing rate in my mutual policy? First of all, they can only do it once a year. And then for the companies that we use, the maximum loan rate is 8%. So there is a cap on this. Now there, there's a lag because they have borrow, they have bought um, bonds already at a lower rate, okay, and so they're not going to have to compete against the lending until they get to a point where they can buy enough in their portfolio that will make a difference in what they're making in that particular portfolio because the the life insurance companies look at their they look they have a long range look at things but they're they're rolling over their bond portfolio constantly because bonds have a duration whether it's 1 year, 10 year, 15 year, 20 year, 30 year bonds and some corporate bonds would even actually come to where they have maybe even between a, a 5 or a 10 year where they might be a seven-year bond or something like that. So there's going to always be a little delay. Now, how did, when was the last time this affected mutual companies? Well, this from um, in the early 80s, when it was the last time we had this kind of inflation, and we have historical reference to this, when inflation started in 1981, the dividends that were paid out they they matched the illustrated values for about three years. Then on the fourth year, and we can't promise this is going to happen, but all we can do is look at it historically, mm-hmm. and it makes it makes sense if you understand the if you understand the basic economics. In the fourth year, the dividend that was illustrated was only half of what was actually given. In other words. People made almost twice as much money wow. on the dividend in year four. So that's when it finally caught up. And you're but saying when the portfolio finally turned over enough to catch up. And you're saying inflation was going up. Inflation was happening in that 1981 was also were also interest rates then rising to compensate at that time. Correct. Now Insurance companies were making money differently back then on the bonds because as interest rates were coming down, the bond value was going up. I've talked about this in the in you have to really understand how bonds work. Bonds are sold at par, par value of 1,000. So if you had an interest bearing uh 20-year bond of 10% back in 1981. And it then went down to 9% the next year, and you bought 1000 at 9%. Well, why, why would you 
not want to try to buy the 10% one from in the on the free market because you didn't because now you're only getting 9%. Well, you can do that, but now instead of that bond being worth $1,000, you'd have to pay that bondholder a premium mm-hmm. to actually convince them to sell you that 10 10-year bond. So now maybe instead of $1,000, you would pay $1,100 for it. And there's a break even that you can you can figure out on all that. So the insurance companies then, then were taking their bond portfolio and selling it to people and making a profit on the par value every time. Mm. That's what drove up dividends at that time. But the opposite is also true. So even though they have lower bond right now on the books, they have income coming in every month in the form of premium. So when that in when that premium comes in, they just buy higher yielding bonds. The interest rates are higher. And I'd had dinner with one of the CIOs of one of our major mutual companies. And I asked him point blank, would you rather be in a lowering interest rate environment where the bonds are worth more that you have in your portfolio? Or would you rather be in a rising interest rate environment where you can buy bonds that are at a higher interest rate? And he said, there's no contest. I'd much rather be in a rising interest rate environment because you know you can buy those and you can hold them for a long duration in order to produce income for our our mutual policyholders. He said the other way, we when we sell the bond, we're just making it one time and then we have to accept the lower interest rate. So it makes sense when you look at it from a pure economic uh, reasoning. So then, and remember, every time that new dividend is declared, it now becomes guaranteed and the future dividends are going to be compounded on that. That's the Which key. That's powerful. And that's very powerful. It's so much that if you looked at a, a, a contract that was put out in 1981 through 1992, 12 years, the impact on that, the cash value grew by 27% greater than was illustrated. And so- And that was in a rising- That, that was in a lowering interest rate environment, but a rising bond value environment. And so every indication is, if historically speaking, if we stay in this rising interest rate environment, which we will for a while, and I don't think they're going to get back to zero again. Now, I never thought they would stay for zero for 10 years to 12 years. So who knows? But I think they're going to try to normalize them again. And if that happens, though, the dividends should still increase because they've been keeping the dividends pretty much stagnant for the last seven years or so because interest rates have been at zero. So in what I'm hearing you say back from the guy that you talked to at the insurance company where he said he'd rather be in a rising interest rate environment, you're saying that if it was good that the insurance companies were paying, I think you said 27% higher. Over a 12-year period, the the cash value that was illustrated ended up being 27% higher in actual cash value after those 12 years than, than what was illustrated. So if that happened, 
in an environment with falling interest rates, how much, and that was where they can only make a profit one time on the sale of the bonds in that environment. You're saying that because now we're in a position of being able to have the insurance companies buy new bonds that are being issued at higher interest rates, that's better in the long term with the rising interest rate environment. Yes. And it, and it kind of makes sense because now instead of just making, you know, making the money on the one-time sale of the bond, they're they're going to be able to make the money off of that for whatever duration that they bought the bond for. So it's it make it makes a lot of sense from just a pure logical perspective. Now let's talk about a little bit about um policy design. Actually, Bruce, before we do. I would like to take a little tiny detour because right now we're talking a lot about rates. And you said earlier that if you understand the concept, the interest rates don't matter. And so if we really come all the way back to basics, and I'm sure we could leave this until the end, but I just really want to point out right now that even if you say, well, the interest rates are changing, which is going to impact the insurance policy, the concept is still solid. The concept isn't going anywhere. The idea is I'm putting my dollars into a location, I'm storing capital, I'm earning growth rate on that, and I'm able to access my money. That's a powerful position to be in rather than saying, well, what are my other alternatives? I could put all of my money into the stock market and have that um, volatile and not be able to um, guarantee or count on the money being there in the future. That's not in a safe position. I don't necessarily have capital there that I can just deploy and use. I'm in a position with infinite banking that I'm becoming the banker, I'm controlling capital, and I'm in a position that I have access to use that capital. And because of that, whether the interest rates fluctuate, whether the borrowing rate goes up or down, whether the growth rate goes up or down, you still have the bare bones, the concept of being able to hold and store capital that you can access and use. Nothing changes with that. No, you're you're developing good habits and you have cash value. And as Nelson said on a bunch of occasions, you know, opportunities find cash. Mm-hmm. And also what's happening right now in um, private equity markets and the and the SPACs, which I really can't, for disclosure reasons, I can't really go into this very deeply, but they have so much capital because of all this money that's in the system, they have to deploy it into the system and they're making poor decisions right now because they have to go out and they're searching for yield. They're searching for a prop, a, uh, a building, or they're searching for a business. And they're because they're under, they have so much money and they have to get it deployed. They're making bad decisions. That's the same thing that can happen to you. If you see yourself as a business, if you're sitting on cash, my father used to call it burning a hole in your pocket. Mm-hmm. So if you're sitting on cash and you feel like I got to deploy this, I got to deploy this, I got to keep my money working for me. And you then deploy it into a situation that you didn't do enough research in, on, or maybe you did enough research on it, but you stayed and you didn't diversify and you stayed in one asset class too, too much just because you want to deploy your money. You do risk uh, making foolish decisions just because you're sitting on cash value. Which means, again, pointing back to the people who are using infinite banking are borrowing against their capital 10 to 14%, not usually 
redlining it at the 90% mark. So don't think just because I have cash value, I have to put this to work somewhere else. It's already working very powerfully for you inside the policy. Yeah. Remember, once again, if you get a an on average, a 4% uh, uninterrupted compound is much different than a 4% average compound. Mm-hmm. And we won't go into that today. You can, you can actually look that up. But that's also a, a tax-free return. So depending on what what your um, tax rate is in your both your state and federal, that could be a six and a half percent taxable equivalent. Mm-hmm. And once again, that's six and a half percent taxable equivalent. That's uninterrupted. So it's an actual return, not an average return, which once again is going to be a higher return for you. Yes. So you have to consider that when you're when you're trying to deploy your money wisely. Uh, Bruce, I think that was extremely valuable. Let's go back to where you were headed with policy design. Yeah, so this is this is something in, and I think you know eventually we're going to probably want to do a webinar or something on this to show to show actual numbers. But I think. If you for everybody listening here, I probably have gotten annual statements before. And all you have to do is go back to your annual statement, and you're going to see, depending on which company you use and how it was designed, you're going to see two basic designs. You're going to see a design with a base and a PUA. Depending on how much base it is, you may have to add a term writer. Or in some companies, they actually add a blended term rider with the PUAs. We, I'm not going to go into that today. But what I want you to understand is you can actually break this down on your annual statement, and it will break down the total dividend, and then it will show you the dividend that was assigned to the base part of the policy and the dividend that was assigned to the PUA part of the policy. So you don't have to take my word for this. Just look at your annual statement. So I'm going to give you an example. Let's say we have $100,000 of a premium and 40% of it was allocated to the base and 60% of it was allocated to the PUA. That $40,000 is going to buy you um, because you're contractually paying for that over a time period. Somewhere in the neighborhood, if you're a 40-year-old, 20 times more in in life insurance. So $800,000. Where the $60,000 for a 40-year-old is going to buy anywhere between two and two and a half times. So let's just call it two times. That that, uh, that $60,000 is going to get you $120,000 of death benefit. So 60,000 gets you 120, 40,000 gets you 800,000. So now you look at the way the dividend is broken down, the dividend on the base policy is going to be about 90% of the total gross dividend. So 40% of the base is going to get you 90% of the total gross dividend and 60% of the PUA is going to only get you about 10% of the gross dividend. So that means that the higher the base policy, 
as interest rates change and dividends increase, the higher the base policy, it would be logical to say that the dividends will then grow even greater. You know, we're seeing as well people who are initiating policy decisions right now. Some are saying, hey, I would actually like to have an all-base policy considering what I'm expecting to happen in the future. And I know that with our most recent policy that we started, we weighted more heavily on the base than we would have earlier had we made the decision a few years earlier. And I know that there's other people who are making some decisions and looking at all-base policies that are expecting and are currently performing very well. Correct. And they're also doing it because they want they want long-term guaranteed death benefit also. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's not a design for everybody, uh, but it is a design that, you know, some people consider. I, do, I am seeing people get away more from these 1090 designs um, because they're logically saying, oh, that's great. Yeah, I was using the 90% PUA for other investment opportunities. A lot of times it was real estate, but now those real estate opportunities are drying up. Is and that's what <laughs> that's what the Federal Reserve wants. They want this to dry up, this to, to uh, squell inflation. So now on their newer policies, they're saying, yeah, why don't we boost up the base so that I'm going to get a better return potentially on this than I would on something outside. Now, Rachel, Nelson knew this, that not only did he know the numbers behind it, but he also knew about human, the human condition, the human nature. Like he talked about, you know, a, a luxury enjoyed once becomes a necessity. And so true. It's very, very true. And so what people find out on these IBC policies all the time that is they figure out, oh, you mean I can borrow, you know, up to 94% of my 1090 policy and I can go put it somewhere else? Oh, yeah, I'll pay it back. Well, they end up realizing that, oh, I don't have to pay it back. Mm-hmm. So I won't. And Nelson, this is a human condition that Nelson understood. So he said, they say they don't pay it back. Well, now think about this. If you're getting a base policy that's making a lot lower dividend and you don't pay your, your, the interest back on a policy loan of 90%, you only have the dividend and interest being made on that 10% to offset the 90% that you've loaned against. And that is not going to stay up. Now, as long as you keep making your premium payment, you'll be okay. But that that comes into, once again, are you making good decisions long-term? Are you thinking about this long-term? All this has to take into consideration. It's not, it's not as glitzy as people... Uh, make it seem like on the internet because they haven't dealt with enough policyholders over the time like Nelson has. And frankly, like I have, people with great intentions do not develop good habits before they actually start borrowing against their policies. You know, it's interesting. I was trying to see if I could get the actual um, verse. So in our family, we do devotions in the morning and we pulled up the verse of the day. It's so applicable. So I'm going to actually share it. 
um, except for this is a funny version. So I'm going to um, try to paraphrase. So basically it was saying that no discipline, and this is why I'm sharing it. No discipline seems to be enjoyable in the present moment, but it seems painful. This is from Hebrews 12, 11, but nevertheless, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So what it's saying, what the verse is saying is discipline is good. It doesn't feel good right now, but the end result of discipline is peace and the fruit of doing the right thing is peace. And so it's amazing that when you look at infinite banking, you might say, well, it doesn't feel good to be disciplined to consistently pay back my loans. It doesn't feel good to be disciplined to always pay my premium payment. I could do so many other things with that money. I could you know, spend it in a way that feels more valuable right now. But the discipline of being able to have those systems in place yields so much confidence, peace, security in the future. And what's really interesting, we were talking about earlier how the people who are mostly using infinite banking were in a position of borrowing that 10 to 14%. I can tell you, we've had higher percentage of loans on our policies and we've had lower percentage. And you know what I like better? I like the lower percentage of loans because we're in a position of saying, well, I have capital now. It's not a position of saying, well, it's deployed at the moment and it's working somewhere else for me. But it is the position of saying, I have this cash, I can use it however I desire. And because of that, I'm in a position of confidence. So I wanted to go ahead and share that today. If you, um, Bruce, we've we've covered a lot of ground. I mean, you really, we have Malik Day saying, Bruce is teaching here, take notes. I, that's what I thought from his initial comments saying the, the notes and the paper. I love that you're sharing about policy design. We're really breaking down how you get so much more death benefit with the base premium, how the dividends are paid strongly on that death benefit, which is on the base premium primarily. And so we're thinking if we want our policies to grow in a rising interest rate environment, that can lead us to saying, well, if I'm really thinking long-term, I do want as much death benefit as possible. I do want as much base premium as possible. I do want as much long-term growth. So we've covered a lot here. Can you um, bring up just a little bit, if somebody was saying, well, what about other financing strategies in this environment? Can What about margin accounts on um, my stock portfolio? How, how can I think about financing in a big picture with this rising interest rate environment? Yeah, first of all, I want to thank everybody for listening today. Um, we're getting a lot of feedback lately from clients and potential clients that they actually enjoy um, you and I's transparent teaching styles. And, you know, to be totally transparent, because I, I've done this now in the last, you know, t- 10 weeks or so with clients, because I do believe you, you have to understand the education of a higher base policy. Yes, we get paid more when we sell higher base policies. There's no doubt about it. And I tell people that all the time. Hey, I'm telling you this, and by, for transparency, we're going to get paid more. But then I say this to them. But if you're getting what you want, do you really care what the fees are? You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's the same thing that I, I do and I evaluate in everything in my life is, you know, I'm evaluating, is this what I want, whether it's a couch my wife and I buy from a furniture store, or if it's a car that I buy, or heck, you do it at the grocery store. You know, you pick something up, especially nowadays, and you're like, oh, I'd really like to have this, but 
man, it's just too expensive. I'll look for something else that might be. So obviously, you know, they might be making more on one item, but if you get what you want, why do you care what the fee is in, involved in it? And, and oftentimes people are, are out on the internet right now are talking about how people are only doing things for commission wise. And I'd say you would want your people to be successful that you're working with because that way you, they stay in business. Mm-hmm. Uh, I certainly love that with all the, all the businesses I talk about. So I just wanted to be real transparent on that, that we realize we're making more money when we suggest this, but we think there's a good reason why to do that. I love that you brought that up. And Bruce, I just want to add something onto that because if you are really looking for the cheapest deal possible, you don't really care if something lasts, if it falls apart. I mean, you thought you talk about buying a couch. We've just had that experience recently. I mean, we, we, we make decisions based on what we actually want to have. I can tell you, you can go buy a belt. And I did this. I had a belt that was not a real leather belt. It looks leather. It's synthetic. And within three days, the outer part is scuffing off. I got what I paid for. I'm, I wanted a belt. It had a certain look. It created what I wanted for like two wears. Well, instead I said, I'm going to go buy a real belt. I paid like six times as much money for a belt that looks almost exactly the same. That's real. I don't care that I paid more for it because I know it's going to last. It's the quality I'm looking for. And so it's the same situation in all of your life. You really do get what you want. Yeah. My grandmother, I think I've said this before. Yes. I guess my grandmother used to say, the the more you spend on clothes, the less you spend on clothes. It's true. And uh, I think there's a lot of things in life that are like that. Now let's talk about other borrowing situations. So yes, uh, margin accounts where you can borrow against your stock portfolio uh, could be one thing that you use. Of course, as the stock portfolio goes down in a margin account, they only allow you to borrow up to 50% of the value of your stocks. And guess what? If the stocks go down and you borrowed against the entire amount, they make you actually sell your stocks, obviously, at a deep discount to bring that back up to 50%. So you're selling at a time and taking a loss at a time that maybe you don't want to just to pay off your margin account. There are possibilities that you could use that outside of the margin account to actually use as collateral to do this, to borrow against for other things. The most common thing that, but obviously before I move on, yes, it a lot of times, they actually have a lower rate because they're they're making money than when you buy the stock also. So they can afford to have a lower borrowing rate because they're making it up on the other side. Um, a, lot of our, a lot of people consider, and a couple of our clients actually did this, two of our clients, and I know exactly who they are, and, and they listen to the podcast, and maybe we should have them on and talk about their experience, but they both went to banks they both collaterally assigned their cash value to the bank, and they both had a tremendous difficulty getting that release because it was a floating interest rate. So I believe the interest rate on both of them was 3.25 instead of five. Well, then it which is probably why they made the decision, right? Exactly why they made the decision. And then and then it went above five percent. So they're like, oh. Now we're paying more. So they said, we'd like to pay off our loan. And now we can just have the loan from the insurance company. 
But in both cases, this is why you have to be in control. In both cases, they said, yeah, you can pay off the loan, then we'll release your cash value. And they were like, well, wait a minute, we're going to use our cash value to pay off their loan. And they're like, no, you can't do that. You got to pay off the loan first, and then we'll release the cash value. So that you have to be very careful and understand what the terms of the loan are before you do this. So when, And when that a, points out that control is better than saving money. And this is not saying that you two people who made that decision are terrible decision makers, but we all are guilty of sometimes saying, well, I'm going to do this thing that seems cheaper in the moment. I'm going to save some money. But if you realize that you're giving up control, you may want to change your decision. And instead of just saving money, you might want to be in a position of more control. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the weird thing, Rachel, is I just bought a belt the other day too. And it was That's because I got, I got tired of the belts falling apart, you know, very quickly. So, and I, I spent a lot more money on this, listening to my grandma overly talk about, you know, go ahead and spend the more money, you know, it'll last longer. And then uh, Mark's just said value versus price. And, yes. you know, I know our listeners know all this stuff, but, you know, I, I was a coach and a teacher for years. And, you know, every year, whether it's in the classroom or on the field, you always start off with fundamentals. You know, how what good what are good study habits? What are good note-taking habits? So, you know, I know we we compound and talk about these things over and over and over, but I think the listeners appreciate the review because it's a slippery slope. You're just going to slide back into bad habits. And oh, that's it's so true. Coaching. Yeah. Unless you're in a community or around people who are talking about things that are lifting you up out of that. I mean, it's the same reason people go to masterminds. It's the same reason that you need to be intentional about your circle of friends. It's everything that you do, the, the books you read, the podcasts you listen to, all of it is meant to pull you higher, lift you up out of that normal human condition of just doing what's easiest and simplest in the moment and making ideal decisions instead. Yeah, the Mark, fundamentals are so yeah, valuable. Michael talks about delayed gratification. It's it really is the the people that delay gratification in the long run come out way ahead than the people that do not have good habits. Mm. And that that is the human behavior that Nelson uh, understood when he wrote his book, Becoming Your Own Banker. It's not just about taking the banking function into your into your life. It's also about developing good savings habits. And there's nothing better than being contractually obligated to make that payment. And I've said this before on the podcast, you know, there's there's services out there now that will actually get reoccurring payments off of you out of your check checking account because people don't even have any idea that they're paying for the gym membership or they're paying for a vacation uh, membership or a rental car agreement that if you if you get on this and you pay us monthly, you're going to get a cheaper thing and they never use it. Mm -hmm. And that's because it's systematic. It comes out systematically. You know, it's you know, that's going to come out first, just like savings should be done first, not Amen. spending. So. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that delayed gratification is something you can teach really young and I highly recommend it. We have a 10, uh, 11 year old. She just had a birthday. I need to remember that she's now one year older. 
Uh, and she has her own business. She makes money every month. And we started from the very beginning. This was about two and a half years ago, having her save 40% of everything she makes. That didn't feel good at first, right? She was in the position of saying, well, I made that money. It's mine. How come I have to put it away in savings? But now every single time we add to the savings, we show her, here's your balance. Here's your balance now. And we actually talked about, you know, the value of some vehicles are lower um, when they're older cars. They might still drive, but they're not going to cost $40,000 like on the lot. Maybe you can get a car for $1,000, $1,500. Well, she's looking as an 11-year-old at her bank account with savings, realizing, hey, you know, I'm 11, but if I needed to buy a car that would transport me, I could buy a car now. Like that's really cool because of delayed gratification. She's mm -hmm. in a position of recognizing that it's not just about spending for what I want right now. I have to work for that and save up for it. So something that we all need to learn and it's so valuable at a younger age. So if you have children, make sure you infuse this into their financial habits now at a young age. It's so much easier to teach stewardship when you've put the building blocks in place. Yeah. And my final comment today is I want to thank everybody for listening. You, you really should become your best financial advocate for yourself by researching things over and over. I tell people all the time when, when we have people come to us and are, are looking to put a policy in place, we want people that have researched and they have decided that they would like to work with us because of the education involved with it. And we're not just going to, you know, the very first time get you into an application and say, here, here you go. Good luck. Um, we were, we have uh, systems in place where we do annual reviews. We're available to help you through the lending process, the payback process, the amortization process the other strategies that you may use outside of the cash value for, for as far as cash flow, so on and so forth. And um, it's one of our clients that's been around since the beginning of the money advantage. He actually called me the other day because he went to a, a, a friend's seminar uh, as, a, as a favor to a friend. And it was more about money management as far as uh, investment in stocks, bonds, mutual funds. And the guy started talking to him about, you know, where he puts his money. And he told him, you know, he has a Roth IRA, but he puts a lot of money in cash value life insurance. The guy right away said, oh, you don't want to do that. That's the only reason they sold that to you was because they wanted to make commissions and they're never going to talk to you again. And he said, I proudly said, I talk to my guy at least once every three months. <laughs> and he and he goes, he didn't know what to say. And yeah. that's why we're as you found from our channel, we're never talking badly about all the asset classes. We're not saying that whole life is the only thing you should do, but it is a foundational thing you should do. And then you should look to diversify through other asset classes. Uh, Bruce, I love that you brought that up because the foundation, the fundamentals is so valuable. You said in the classroom and out of the classroom, it's so valuable in every area of life. And it's amazing that you can have a very, very strong foundation by using the principles. And we found that infinite banking works very well to handle these principles of building yourself a into a position of control. Um, the other thing that we don't do with client meetings is we don't say, oh, what do you want? Okay, that's how much premium you want to put in. That's exactly the policy design you want. We're going to just take your order and sign you up into a policy. We're going to really look at what your situation is 
make sure it's the best decision for you, look at your funding capability, look at what you're trying to accomplish. And so I would say, um, I would say boldly, we're not just order takers. We really are building a conversation with somebody to make sure it's the best decision for you in the long term. So with that being said, if you are interested in that appointment or that conversation, it is no strings attached. You can get into one conversation, find out if we're the right fit to work together, and then decide if you want to move forward. Go over to the moneyadvantage.com. There's either at the top or right in the middle of the page. There's in both locations. You can just click the button that says get on our calendar or schedule a call. You can go ahead and do that. And that is going to bring you into that conversation where you're going to be able to start figuring out exactly what would be the best fit for you. And if we're the team to work together to help you accomplish your goals. So you can do that. If you're watching the show, please go ahead and give us a thumbs up. Go ahead and like and subscribe. This is really a pleasure to serve you and to hear your comments, your feedback, your questions. Keep them coming. We love hearing what's on your mind so that we can make the show as relevant as possible to answering your questions. So in closing, please remember success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.